0: My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio.
1: Indigenous women be leaders and decision makers and even providing for their communities clash with the settler fur traders. So this is where it began. You had, you know, kidnapping or jailing of Indigenous women or even killing of Indigenous because of the power they had in their communities.
0: That's the voice of Darlene Okamesom-Sicod. She's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Darlene Okamasum-Seacott grew up in Beardy's and Okamasas Cree Nation in Saskatchewan, north of Saskatoon. She was one of 14 children, and her parents were residential school survivors. Growing up, her family was very involved in the community, and her parents regularly set an example of standing up and speaking out when something unjust was going on. From a young age, Okamesom Seacott was a high achiever in school. She got a degree from the University of Saskatchewan in sociology and women's studies. After graduating, she worked in indigenous community organizations in Saskatoon, but was eventually hired by the indigenous studies department at the university. Back in 2005, there were many indigenous women and girls from Saskatchewan who were missing, and many others who had experienced violence. And in those years, mainstream media seldom gave the issue much attention. Okamaysom Seacott and a number of other people, particularly other indigenous women, decided to come together and begin taking action collectively in response to the crisis, initially with an event on that year's International Human Rights Day on December 10th. Out of that work, they founded a grassroots group called Iskwewuk Iwichewichichik, or Women Walking Together. For Okamesum Seacot, the root causes of the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women can be found by looking at the history of colonization. Gender worked in lots of different ways in different indigenous nations before colonization, but none of them were in line with the Christian patriarchy guiding the early generations of colonizers. Moreover, indigenous women were central to their nations, in many instances as leaders and decision-makers. So even as far back as the days of the fur trade, undermining indigenous nations through attacking indigenous women was a central colonial strategy. That continued as colonial settlement and agriculture came to predominate, and then via residential schools starting later in the 19th century. In the 20th century, as residential schools gradually began to recede, there was the so-called Sixties Scoop, in which large numbers of indigenous children were taken from their families and placed primarily with settler families. And still today, the so-called Child Welfare System continues to target indigenous families, to the point where today more than three times as many indigenous children are placed in quote-unquote state care than were at the height of the residential school system. While many of these systemic violences against indigenous people have not only targeted women and girls, their harms most certainly do have a huge impact on women and girls, and often specific and distinct impacts. Despite all of this history and the ongoing crisis it has created, Hokemesum-Seacott said, quote, "...indigenous women are resilient, we're not going anywhere." End quote. Iskwewuk Iwichiwichichik has never incorporated or sought formal funding their work has always followed the lead of the families of missing and murdered women. It's involved planning many, many actions, fundraising, logistical support work, cultural and emotional support, and working hard to shield the families from the sometimes hostile media and public. They've also contributed to research and writing projects related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, and in recent years have been working with other groups in Saskatoon around enacting reconciliation at the municipal level. Perhaps the most visible development on the issue in the last decade was the national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Iskwewuk Iwichuichichik was very involved in advocating for such an inquiry in the years before it happened, in contributing to the inquiry itself, and in the subsequent process to develop a national action plan. Often as a grassroots group, they've not been given much space by official organizations, but they've done their best hokemesum Seacot recognizes the challenges and limitations of working within formal state processes, but nonetheless sees that work as an important path towards the kinds of changes that will improve people's lives and to shifting the circumstances that allow the crisis to persist. These days, the core membership of the group is getting smaller and older. They're still going strong, but now with a greater emphasis on mentoring, consulting, and providing guidance to those taking up the struggle. I speak with Okamesim Seacott about the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and about the work of Iskwewuk Iwichiwichichik.
1: My name is Darlene Rose Okamesim Seacott. I'm from Beardies and Okamatsis Cree Nation in the province of Saskatchewan, Canada. And I am the co chair of Iskwewuk Iwichiwichichik, Women Walking Together in the City of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan on Treaty 6. I was born and raised in Beardies, in Okemasis Cree Nation, outside of Duck Lake, the site of the Louis Riel Rebellion. I was one of fourteen children to my parents, who were Indian Residential School survivors from Saint Michael's Indian Residential School in the town of Duck Lake. My parents were very involved with community. My father was a lifelong Veteran Association. They ended up working in the Indian residential school that provide for us, but they were very engaged with the community. Every time there was a gathering, our parents were involved and they would take us. And as most people know, a lot of Indigenous communities have been dealing with a historical and colonial structure. So for us to be able to constantly gather and meet with each other, that was the foundation of me being involved I was a high profession student right from kindergarten. I could read Peter Pan before I started school because my sisters taught me. So I guess it was more like Peter Pan could fly. I related more to him because he could do anything. And I didn't think of the gender issue at all because our parents didn't pick either gender as more important than the other. Other than that, we'd be decent human beings. We were raised with Catholicism and Indigenous community practices like feasts and round dance and pipe ceremony, so we were not away from it. And they were fluent Cree speakers, so they spoke fluent Cree to the first half of our siblings, and then as restrictions started lifting in communities, they start speaking English to me and the younger ones. I always saw my parents standing up when things were not right and they did it in a, you know, in an assertive way without being angry or cruel. So they modeled a way to do all of this social justice and social agency to, you know, just keep family safe, keep the peace and just mosey along with building the community and being together. So that's been the foundation that went away to school None of us went to Indian residential school, but I went to a girl's school. I didn't live there. I boarded out in Prince Albert. And so I had my Catholicism in there. But, you know, on the weekends or on summer, we were doing our Indigenous practices with our family. And then I met a Dakota fellow from Wapayton when I was 16 and we had a couple of little boys and he introduced me to more Dakota types of activism through his father and his mother from White Bear First Nation down south of Saskatchewan. So I got a really nice abundance of influences and people that really intrigued the way I would look at the world. And it's not like I'm always angry, but there's always seems to be room for improvement At the same time, I was experiencing the gender thing. You know, I'm very small, only five foot three. So I looked 14 when I was 17 or something like that. So I had to work against that. And then also I was really light haired and light skinned, a lot different than most of my siblings. So I always looked like I was adopted. And my parents were always asking, were you adopted? And, you know, it's just kind of things that just mold you all through my school. I got proficiency award and I really didn't understand it. It wasn't something I was taught to excel at, like to pursue. It just happened and I just kept going along with it. I always seemed to be in a space or a circle where there's conversation or some action needed to be done. And when you grew up with a bunch of brothers and sisters, you divide labor constantly because there's so much work that has to be done in the home. So that's where all of this was built.
0: Think back to 2005, to the founding of Eskwaywook Iwetchiwetchichik. What were the community circumstances, the community conversations that it came out of?
1: I had been residing in Saskatoon, and I attended the University of Saskatchewan, became involved with Indigenous student politics, and I majored in sociology and women's studies. And I applied to the workplaces I went to, and now a Saskatoon Tribal Council Family Centre And the biggest jump I had from there was right to the University of Saskatchewan in the Indigenous Studies Department. When I got there, there was 10-year wars going on internally in the Indigenous Studies Department between non-Indigenous faculty and Indigenous faculty, like who had the right to teach, who had the right to do the language, who had the right to run the department. I was put in there because I need to provide for my four children because my relationship had dissolved and I couldn't eat ideal. So that's where the setting started. When you're in that kind of environment, you're kind of privy to so much information that you become kind of the clearinghouse of Indigenous books or curriculum or news or campus events. And at Native Studies, now called Indigenous Studies, I had to multitask all of those skills. And then during that time, we had about 12 missing Indigenous girls between, say, 15 and 25 in our jurisdiction. And there was a call for action with the City of Saskatoon Race Relations and the Saskatchewan Human Rights Commission. Two of those ladies invited the community to go to the inner city to White Buffalo Youth Lodge where about 50 people met and we wanted to do something to address the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And this was post-OPAL inquiry for what was happening in BC with the serial killer out there. And what we decided to do is that we would have an International Human Rights Day event on December 10th and 2005. We had decided also that we wouldn't be a bureaucratic type of entity, that we wanted to strictly just raise awareness and give supports and remembrance to the families. Because during that time, the victims of the missing were always portrayed as high-risk lifestyle and they didn't matter. You know, sometimes it didn't make the paper, sometimes it didn't make the news. But when we did have our gathering, about 180 people came. We had four families. We had women agencies speak. We had an elder. We had Dr. Rose Roberts chair and MC the event. And then we had, at the time, Premier Lord Calvert, who announced a missing persons task force. And from there, we kind of grew into sticking to the remembrance supports and awareness for the families of the missing. So all of our efforts were always strictly to the families first. And that's going on 17 years. And we've stuck to that. We haven't been incorporated. We're not nonprofit. We have no office. But all of our core members have a big collection of missing persons, posters, minutes, actions. On average, the first four or five years, I think we did about 60 actions, all different types. And all of them involved working with CBOs, NGOs in in the city of Saskatoon. And in each of those things, there is always a family present who could share their missing persons experience and what they're going through during that time. And that's including supporting them with their walks and welcoming national walkers back. In those early days, it was the Walk for Justice, the Walk for Tears. They had their national walks and they came through Saskatchewan and Saskatoon. So we are always a pinpoint for where people can meet if they are doing their actions from the East Coast to the West Coast or the West Coast to the East Coast. I think we built a reputation of there's a group in Saskatchewan that doesn't have those parameters as a government agency like victim services or status of women or policing. We had so much autonomy. And we continue to that it, it does seem to work. So yeah, it's a lot of work.
0: So before we get to talking more about the group's work, lay out for listeners your understanding of the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and its root causes.
1: The root causes, well, during contact, we had our Indigenous relationships with what we'll called settler society arriving to North America and Canada. And then, you know, you have Indigenous communities. So when you have a Victorian mentality that came from the settlers from Europe, you know, you know there's going to be differences and there would eventually be some kind of a clash. You have the Victorian women being subservient, but then you have Indigenous women be leaders and decision makers and even providing for their communities clash with the settler fur traders. So this is where it began. Sometimes intermarriage is just to kind of build two communities to cooperate. Sometimes that would be arranged. But then you had, you know, kidnapping or jailing of Indigenous women or even killing of Indigenous women because of the power they had in their communities. And that's the biggest strong foundation. If anyone ever wants to read about the fur trade in Indigenous women, that is where the missing women's pieces start. We might not call it human trafficking back then, but they did take indigenous people to Europe as, you know, kind of the wild west show. So there's your first examples of where the missing indigenous woman came. Then you kind of speed it up to land development and the ox and plow and agriculture. You had the women that knew how to do that work. And then you have that clash again because the typical farmer is male. And then you add on to that. In the 1800s, Indian residential school system, where RCMP are picking up Indigenous children all across the country, and they're taking them to these Indian residential schools. To some degree, the girls are separated from the boys. There's no interaction, but there's also no parenting skills being taught because of all the human rights abuse, the genocide that came from it, the unmarked graves, and all those children that were born there, you know, they're victims of rape. And another tragedy is that Indian residential school experience where they are, you know, subject to sexism and misogyny and cruelty that's been documented. Then you speed it up to the 60 scoop where 60 to 80,000 kids scooped up from their communities. Those children are taken from the homes of Indigenous couples and put into the system and put into foster care environments where they're predominantly used for house labor and in some cases, a lot of physical, mental, and sexual abuse. So there you go. You have about four things right now. You have fur trade, you have farming, you have the Indian residential school, and you have Sixty Scoop. Then to child welfare now, to the modern age, like today, that population has our Indigenous women and girls. So there's a big slew of history that's gone on in our country that we've actually been able to kind of document during the National Inquiry to Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. It's so much work to unravel, but what comes out of it is that Indigenous women are resilient We're not going anywhere. We're picking up our languages again. We're probably more in higher numbers of getting post-secondary education than our male counterparts. But definitely, we've had such a hit where it comes to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So that would give the context to why we are here today.
0: Talk about the different kinds of actions your group has taken over the years.
1: Our standard December 10th event is to have families come. We would fundraise. We would have them speak. And there's some areas in there that people don't qualify for when you're getting grants or sponsorship. There's no money to be given to honorariums or to elders or to food or accommodations. And that's where we came in. If there's no grants for accounting for that, at least that's something we can do. And that's what we did with the first pots of money that was donated and fundraised during our first event. The thing that's key with us, we've never had a government grant. We've survived on donations and fundraising. And if the system's not going to pay these families to speak, if the system is not going to give them a hotel when they're coming to town to speak, If the system is not going to give them money to search for their daughter or their grandmother or their sister or their niece, at least we can provide some of that. And I think that's the strongest part of what we do. And for us, trying to support these families and not exploit them was our biggest mandate to protect them, comfort them, and make sure that they're okay. And what came out of that is that some of the families found strength and courage and support to run their own awareness and remembrance of their missing. And one family in particular, the Darlene Bassi Muskego family, they started doing walks for her from Saskatoon to Onion Lake, where she was from. We would support them, help advertise. We would find some money and help them get t-shirts or stuff like that. It's really hard to do this kind of work on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls because it's not glamorous. The families are in heartache, they're in PTSD, they're in trauma. And all of us core women in Esquewick, we got to have some skills of empathy and trauma-informed skills. We have a lot of retired professors, retired feminists, NGOs and CBOs. United Way brokered our meager funds. The other things that we got involved in is research. We became part of the Human Rights Watch, Saskatchewan police abuses, alleged abuses towards Indigenous women and girls in 2017. We worked with that Human Rights Watch team from Washington. That's an example of another way that we use our abilities and our experience to help that process. The other things that we've done is we've written chapters and books for Dr. Kim Anderson, Maria Campbell, and Christy Belcourt. The other things that we've also done is we've had art events where we've created quilt piece for a National Quilt Ensemble by Alice Williams. A big thing that we have been doing is attending court as well. We've attended three court hearings for We have our members go in there and sit day in, day out and report to our group because in that process, we're assessing and being there for the family, trying to figure out, well, what more can we do? Where do we need to step in? We have those mechanisms in place where we're always having to buffer their experience so they're not being exploited or being further hurt by the system. I think the biggest thing that we've all accomplished all across the country was ask for this national inquiry. And we became a big part even before the government got in. I had met the prime minister when he was their leader and he came through Saskatoon. I just started being in the Liberal Party and using my skills to, you know, advance women and advance Indigenous rights. Another area in Saskatchewan that we've been really working hard on is Reconciliation Saskatoon. And it's basically a bunch of CBOs and NGOs sitting together and um, how, how do we do this reconciliation and calls to action? We were able to help them, guide them with our experience. And we've had walks for Sisters in Spirit since 2006. Sisters in Spirit was created by the National Women's Association of Canada coming out of the Stolen Sisters report in 2004. So with our experiences, we were able to help the Saskatoon Reconciliation Team build their walk, what to consider, all that kind of stuff. Those are a bunch of things that we have done. Those are kind of our core things.
0: So I know that you did a lot of advocacy to get an inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. And that's advocacy with Justin Trudeau, with Carolyn Bennett, with lots of other people. Tell listeners a bit more about your group's role during and after the inquiry, and about your sense of larger-scale developments in the issue since then.
1: So when the party got in in November 2015, it was probably not even a week or two later where the Prime Minister announced that there be a national inquiry on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So, with my connection with Minister Bennett, and she became the Minister for Indigenous Northern Affairs, so we helped her plan a national group of families, helped her plan the launch, what we would like to see happen. And the reason I'm kind of building this is because it needs for people to see how this comes through. It's not just a silo of a group of people because MMIW experiences all across the country. This process of a national conversation and national planning had to happen. And I need the input of experienced frontlines and grassroots and families to help the minister at the time to help build the inquiry. During the inquiry, there was needs that were surfacing. Part of those needs were health care. We needed aftercare during the inquiry. So there was monies put aside by the government. And from the Women and Genders Circle, they provided commemoration. And we needed both of those things during the inquiry. So there was a structure building up of the needs coming out of the inquiry while it was going on. We had to keep hearing what the families were saying. Now we're at the level of national action plan, and every province and every region has their own national action plan. Submission that was put together on top of the final report of MMIW. You had the final report, but there needed to be an action plan to do that work. So June 3rd of last year, I believe, the national action plan was put together. But prior to that June 3rd, there is regional national action plan meetings, and I participated in almost all of them. I was one of a thousand people constantly working on this national action plan, and groups were invited to put their own national action plan together and submit it to government. In our case, I can't really say that our group was always welcome in these circles, We were in the margins because we had no money, because we had no nonprofit status. We had to submit our plan directly to Minister Bennett because we got marginalized by our own people, (laughs) by, you know, the Indian governments in this region, in this area. You know, when you're having grassroots being marginalized, trying to share their knowledge and their experience and their needs, you're still running into other skills you need to work on. And that's what we did. We just, you know, the minister asked for ours. She knew that we were excluded. So, you know, there's just ways to have these relationships. They might seem colonial or bureaucratic, but the end result is you're wanting these things built into the system.
0: What's coming up for Eskwewuk?
1: Eskwewuk is still going to be a big part of this stakeholder sessions At this point, because of so many developments on the MMIW file now that people are more comfortable doing it, that we're in a consultant mentorship guidance phase of our work. We're still going to do our actions like Missing Persons Week, you know, just the constant collaborating and of late it's consulting and mentorship and guidance. That is our future. That is our present. It was our past. But the load isn't just on us anymore. There's so many people stepping forward with their own skills and alleviating the pressure on, you know, a group of six or eight women. Because we started off with about 70 interested, and now we're just down to a core 12. So that's how Eskwewak will continue.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Darlene Okamesum sikot of Eskwewak Iwichewichik. To learn more about the organization, search for them on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.